10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Welcome to Swansea in the Twilight Show with me, Nathan, again tonight on the show. We are talking about the cost of the school day, making schools financially equitable. We've got Georgina Burt, we've got Ellie Harwood joining us from the Child Poverty Action Group, and we are going to be talking why it's important and what we can do as teachers and schools to improve it. So, tune in, talk it out. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show on Wednesday with me, Nathan Ginn, here on Teachers Talk Radio. And, you know, I always start the show complaining about the weather. It's actually got really sunny here today, but this morning it was again South Walian rivers down the road. I, I honest, it, you know, people coming in soaked, they've been splashed by passing cars. Like, it still amazes me to see like actual uh, you know I, I'm sure I will get over it but as a Fenland boy it, it, it still like amazes me I'm not used to the the rain and the wet weather now tonight we are talking about the cost of the school day and how that impacts on you know not only the families but the the, the learners as well now I'm joined by um, Ellie Harwood and Georgina but I'm just going to check that they're here with us on the line Ellie I think I can see you there hello um, good hello. evening Oh, and I, I think, is that Georgina there as well? Hello, yes it is. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you fine. So, um, yeah, welcome both of you. Thank you for coming on. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting us. Yeah, really um, looking forward to it. It's been a it's been a really interesting one, you know. Um, when, when we put it out there, when we announced it on Twitter, lots of people saying it was something that was interesting. Them, it's you know very topical at the moment um I, I unfortunately it is very topical at the moment because of things that are going on in the you know in in the uk and the economy um but before we get started for our listeners why don't we set the scene um georgina if we start with you we'll set the scene sort of talking telling us a little bit about yourself and what you currently do yeah so I um, am currently the development manager for the cost of the school day project for England um, at Child Poverty Action Group. So I am supporting a team of practitioners that um, work with schools directly as part of this project. And I'm sure we'll explain lots more about this uh, as, as we continue our conversation. But also my role is about um, through the research that we're carrying out with children and young people about life at school. My job's about sharing that insight. So what we're hearing from children and young people, sharing it with teachers, as, as we're doing now, um, sharing it with other organisations that are working in education and sharing it with people that make policies. So councils, trusts, MPs, uh, really sort of uh, reflecting the, the stories that we've heard from children and young people. So that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And how did you get into it, Georgina? Yeah, so my background, I was a primary school teacher. Um, I worked in uh, an area with very high levels of pupil premium and absolutely loved being in the classroom. Um, I did decide I needed to do something else for a little while and was going to take a year out, but it's been a little bit longer than a year um, and I'm still uh, in this role. I went to work for our partner organisation called Children Northeast on um, Poverty Proof in the School Day and just got really interested in yeah, research with children and young people and listening to their stories. But I'm also very much familiar with what it's like to be in, in the classroom and actually uh, quite miss having a, a class of my own as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've been in and out of the classroom and leadership roles and there is something that always pulls you back to having that class in front of you, isn't there? It's so lovely. Um, right, let's talk to Ellie a little bit. Ellie, tell us about yourself. Hi, yeah. So um, I do uh, a similar job to Georgina, but I'm based in Wales. So I'm a bit up the road from you um, in Ronlachan and Taff. Um, the weather was atrocious this morning and it's really sunny here now as well. So, um, yeah, we're hoping that uh, the spring will come back to us. But basically, um, as well as uh, the work on cost of the school day, I'm also co-chair of Wales's Anti-Poverty Coalition, which is a group of civil society organisations that are kind of working to eliminate poverty in Wales. So um, it's, you know, something that's an issue that's really dear to my I grew up as a child on free school meals. I was receiving free school meals through nearly all of my education. Um, as an adult, I've also lived in poverty um, and as a single parent. Um, and so it's something, you know, as I, I think the sort of taking action on child poverty is something that is, is really important to me. But I do come into this role from more of a policy and advocacy background. So prior to this, I worked with Citizens Advice. I ran a program in schools called Fair Foundations for a couple of years, and that's looking at um, uh, equality and diversity in the classroom as well. So I'm very interested in issues to do with um, kind of socioeconomic inequality um, and what education can do to help overcome that. And I think that's really important, you know, for this our, our discussion tonight, you know, because we're talking about where, I don't know, where two worlds meet, aren't we? Because it's, you know, some people would see addressing issues of poverty as not necessarily being a school issue um but then it affects us all anyway so it's a really tough one where these two worlds meet about sort of the home life and and the school life and i guess we'll, we'll talk a little bit about well about how that poverty affects children's learning and why it is important to us but if we focus a little bit now on on you know you said you're both from the child poverty action group and there's there's lots of things that they do but so what generally is involved in that Shall I take this one, Georgina? Um, yeah, go for it. I mean, we are a charity um, that has existed um, for over 50 years and uh, our aim is to uh, end child poverty across the UK. Um, and we do that primarily um, through uh, research, policy and advocacy. And we help um, families who are hard up get the money that they're entitled to, particularly through the social security system. But we also look at employment, childcare, and education. And we also undertake high profile legal work so that um, we can uphold the rights of children and their families, particularly in relation to social security. So we have quite a long track record of um, doing work in schools and Cost of the School Day um, as a project was actually started by um, Child Poverty Action Group in Scotland. Um, 
going on for nine years ago now. Um, and uh, since then, we've joined forces with Children Northeast and we've rolled the project out then um, to different parts of England and into Wales. Um, but we have kind of known for a very long time that um, schools and education settings do have a critical role to play, both in mitigating child poverty, um, but also um, in some of the kind of social processes that help to prevent poverty as well. Um, so it's, it's really exciting for us to be working on a project that um, kind of links direct action research with children, young people, their families and schools into sort of policy change and working at different levels of government as well. So that's the kind of thing as an organisation that we're really interested in is how you can actually really make big structural changes on the basis of kind of evidence um, that you've collected working with people um, who are experiencing poverty or are providing services to people who experience poverty. Now, most um, teachers, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of generalising here, their understanding when we talk about, you know, where there is a potentially like a low income, a poverty issue, they, they'd be uh, talking about things like the pupil premium, which exists, you know, and, and so whether people agree or not with uh, the labelling of it, that, that would be something that a lot of schools are familiar with, that uh, they might see a child who is labelled as pupil premium. But are we talking more than that? What is child poverty and, and, and what's it like in the UK then? Yeah, so again, I, I can talk uh, more specifically uh, about England and I'm sure Ellie will be able to add uh, sort of the data and figure on Wales. But I guess we're very clear that actually um, pupil premium and, and free school meals is a really poor proxy for poverty. There are lots and lots of families and I can, you know, talk numbers around that that are living in poverty below the poverty line. So that's the Department for Work and Pensions measure of what we mean by poverty, but aren't eligible for free school meals and by extension, pupil premium. So in England, that figure is approaching a million children and young people are living in poverty, but aren't in receipt of or eligible for free school meals. Um, and th there's lots of reasons for this. One is that enrolment isn't automatic. So um, children, families that are eligible may not have applied. The, the biggest issue, however, is that uh, over three quarters of children that are grown up in poverty are grown up in a working household and therefore families earn just too much to put them uh, above the, the threshold for free school meals. And it's a challenge for schools and it's something we, we talk about all the time and can certainly talk about today. I guess our advice to schools is to... Um, to take the pupil premium list as a starting point to explore this issue and, and you know to use the information that it contains because it is valuable but really to look at supporting families more broadly because like i said unfortunately that measure and that metric that we have at the moment just misses out particularly at the moment so many families that are uh, finding things more difficult financially and I'm sure Ellie will have the, the numbers on what that means for Wales where actually I think there are even more children that miss out on that Ellie am I right on that? <laughs> you are yeah unfortunately in Wales we have the highest proportion of children in poverty missing out on free school meals of any nation in the UK at the moment and that's because um, uh, 
at the moment, Wales doesn't have a policy of offering universal free meals to um, children in the foundation phase or what would be infants in um, in England. Um, but we do um, have a, a very significant change coming down the line. So from September, um, the rollout of, of free school meals to all primary pupils will be coming in. However, we don't yet know um, what is going to replace free school meal eligibility is the kind of metric for determining who gets pupil development grant funding and um, in Wales that is um, sort of split into funding um, as anyone working in the schools in Wales will know you get uh, money uh, to the school and also there can be grants for families um, so it's a kind of complex picture but where we stand at the moment is that we know that um, around 42 percent of children in poverty um, in Wales don't qualify for free school meals so it is a it is a pretty weak metric and, and a lot of that is due to the change in the nature of poverty over time as Georgina mentioned you know around um, three quarters of children in poverty do have a parent or carer in work and because the earnings threshold for free school meals is set at £7,400 a year you could be earning £8,000 a year working perhaps as a carer or a teaching assistant um, on a term time only contract you could be a lone parent with three children and you would still be ineligible for free school meals on even on that very low income so you know family typically have to be earning very very little or be out of work altogether to get free school meals and this does then exclude a very large number of children in poverty across the UK as Regina says over a million kids yeah and that you know and I think you mentioned there kind of the complexity of the picture with introducing free school meals and I you know I remember when um free school meals uh, universal free school meals in infant schools in England I you know I was working at the time and they were introduced and it actually caused us an issue with getting people to uh, apply for pupil premium because they saw it very much the free school meals part not realizing and we had to go through a kind of whole I guess a little bit of what you were talking about there of the rights and the eligibility to say, actually, no, the school can, you know, gets this additional money to support your child if you apply for this. It's not just about the meals. And so I guess there, there, there's tripwires that we can fall into, uh, not not just labelling people, but other bits and pieces that, that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, now, I wanted to read just, a, you know, um, we, we're talking about the cost of the school day in particular, and I wanted to read a quote to you from, it's, it's, it's from your website, um, and it's from a boy age 15, and, and this is the quote, it said, um, if all of your friends or people you know go to after school clubs, school trips, that kind of isolates you from them, you're singled out, you're not with them, just a spare person and that that was a really hard hitting kind of you know to, to think that there are children you know feeling like this and I, I do keep coming back to the word children because I think it's important we, sometimes pupils as a word robs us of that or students as a word robs us of the fact that they're, they're children even at 15 um, and there are a lot of rising costs at the moment you know that we need to potentially address why is it important to focus on schools then the cost of the school day why focus on that i'm going to force you on it georgina uh, no i'll go for it i was i was trying to wait and say i'm sure ali will have uh, an answer to this as well and we will probably say similar it's things, the toughest but, um, question i've got it's the toughest I, one no I, I it's it's not tough because do you know what actually i think it's really straightforward education is supposed to be free in the uk and that's not the reality and it, it really is as uh, as straightforward as that 
fitting in at school matters, being able to do what your peers are doing matters. It matters to the children themselves. It, it matters to families. Parents want their children to be able to take up all of the opportunities that are on offer at school. School shouldn't be a place where children miss out or exclude or are excluded because of their family's financial circumstances. You know, school is really for most children that common universal childhood experience. And the thought that that experience is being impacted by uh, family finances is is something that's just not right. So that, I guess that would be my answer as to, to why it's important. Ellie, do you want to come in there? Yeah, I mean, Georgina's nailed it, really. You know, it, the education is supposed to be free, but a lot of things at school are not. And if we really want schools to be as all the governments in the UK would say you know kind of this this great engine of social mobility or um, you know a platform on which to kind of you know help people have better prospects in their lives we have to make sure at a very bare minimum that there's equity of access to the curriculum but also to all the opportunities and to the social and relational kind of um, you know all the joyful things about school as well because we know that children in poverty are, are less likely to say that they're happy at school to feel that they fit in and obviously we, we know we have a lot of data that shows at the end of, of kind of compulsory education that children um, who have been on free school meals or experienced kind of persistent low income um, during their education are much less likely to leave with um, you know the qualifications they need to, to kind of um, uh, you know earn um, enough money and so on so there are so many reasons, you know, why it's important that school is a place really where everyone stands an equal chance of getting the most out of it. Um, and it just matters, particularly in Wales, where we, you know, we are kind of keen on children's rights and, and we try to implement the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, that children have a right to an education. Um, and they also have the right to participation and the right to be included and not to be discriminated against. And we have the socioeconomic duty, which places an obligation on local authorities and other public bodies to make sure that socioeconomic disadvantage isn't perpetuated by how services are run and by, you know, this kind of strategic decisions they're making. So there are lots of you know, kind of technical and bureaucratic reasons as well why t reducing the cost of sending children to school matters. But first and foremost, it really should be that every child has the right to learn and the right to participate. Um, you know, and and at the moment, unfortunately, most schools, um, you know, still are have to um, charge families for some aspects of education or have policies that levy costs. So, you know, we're here to kind of help try and reduce or remove those costs where we can. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to do a, like a little show layout for the listeners while, while you know, uh, so they know where we're heading. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to talk about in the, the kind of first half of our discussion, you know, some of those issues, some of the pressures that are put on families, where they come from, uh, what, where schools aren't realising. I guess a bit like you've said there, that schools are um, asking for money how that how that can happen uh, and then in the second half we're going to talk a bit more about what schools can do and hopefully some of the pitfalls as well um so that is our plan now i will say to our listeners if you are joining us live you can of course text in you can tweet us at tt uh, radio 2022 if you have it and we will be back with some of those points after this quick ad break
This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us... You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn, on Teachers Talk Radio. And we are talking about the cost of the school day. Uh, we're joined by uh, Georgina Burr and Ellie Harwood from the Child Poverty Action Group. And we're going to be talking about making schools financially equitable, uh, especially for our low-income families. Now, if you've just joined us, all you've missed so far is a little bit of introduction, a little bit of setting the scene. You can always listen back at ttradio.org slash listen back. And of course, after the show, this will be published as a podcast and you'll find it on Spotify, on iTunes. You know, you'll be able to ask your Alexa, however you do it, uh, you'll be able to find it to listen back. But uh, starting us off for this part, we're going to talk a little bit about um what some of the costs are, and I guess I, you know, I'm going to term them hidden costs because we have already said education in the UK is supposed to be free, 
so, so I'm going to call them maybe hidden costs. Maybe they're not so hidden to families. But what are some of the costs people are facing? So um, Georgina, Ellie, I'm not sure who wants to kind of go first on that. What, what are people being asked to pay for? Um, so, you know, uh, there's kind of um, obvious things and that m when you mention school costs, the things that come up first tend to be uniform. Most schools in the UK have uniform, certainly in Wales, the Welsh Government encourages schools to um, uh, make their learners wear uniform. Um, and uh, that means you have to go and buy specific clothes. Some schools have very expensive uniforms from exclusive suppliers where you know you, you hear about schools that insist that children wear branded socks with the school logo on that cost you know 11 pounds a pair branded ties and so on so uniform is a, is a big one is a big cost the other big obvious one that most people are aware of is is food at school so you know um while whilst you might may get a free school lunch if if your um your family is deemed to be poor enough to get free school meals um there's often many other times during the school day when you have to eat and drink and you might need to bring food in from home or increasingly um you know even in primary schools where food is sold to to the learners um so you know the sort of food and clothes um can be quite big ones but i think um you know there are many many other charges um and costs um some of which are hidden um uh, or not immediately obvious and uh, one that we're particularly interested in in the moment in wales is around curriculum charges so where specific if you study certain subjects you're expected to pay for and provide materials for your learning so um often sort of catering cookery home economics type courses, um, lots of craft-based subjects, art and design. Um, but there can be a really kind of quite a broad range actually of additional charges and particularly in Wales as we're kind of, um, you know, starting to integrate different subject areas into each other um, as part of the new curriculum. We might see these kind of charges starting to pop up in areas of learning where traditionally the school provided all of the resources because you might have only needed a textbook, for example. But, you know, there's often still just the classic kind of things of needing to bring in like a scientific calculator of your own, your own pens and pencils, these kind of things. They can affect every learner. But I know if I hand over to Georgina, I mean, she can talk um, much more extensively, I think, about some of the, the smaller charges that really do add up. And because they're coming from different parts of the system, it's often hard to get a whole kind of picture of the impact that that has on families. Yeah, so I'd, I'd echo what. Uh, Ellie said, but we, we, you know, all of those things apply to, to schools in England and the curriculum one costs in particular is something that's really interesting because what we're, what's known is not only do we have an attainment gap, but when we get to secondary school, we have what's being termed a participation gap. So that is people, premium children are less likely to take certain subjects. And the two that stand, stand out is having the largest participation gaps by the research that's been done by the Education Policy Institute is music at GCSE and uh, level and, um, and, and PE sports. They tend to have quite significant participation gaps. So free school meal children don't opt for them in, in the same way. And, you, you know, they are subject with additional costs. If you're going to take music at GCSE, you probably need to have instrument tuition to be able to do the performance pieces as, as part of that qualification. Um, we have heard from students directly who said that they wouldn't have picked food technology if they'd known how much it was going to cost them each week for the ingredients that they need to take part and other things like students not being able to take part in practical cooking sessions, being asked instead to 
share with others in the class or um, just write out the recipe instead, you know, not having that full experience of the curriculum. Those smaller things Ali mentioned, though, and again, I think they, they're probably universal across England and Wales, actually, we know they are, are just those like one-off, um, like bring in 50 pence for this, bring in a pound for the cake sale, for the the, the themed non-uniform day, for the, the, the raffle that's been held. These really small amounts, seemingly, but when we add everything together, these costs really do build up for families. Um, and, and those ones, I think, are potentially some of the ones that are most hidden because... They're not a part of the curriculum. You don't have to take part in the dressy update. You don't have to buy a cake at the cake sale. You know, it's always deemed as optional. But who wants to miss out on those things that make school that make school fun? Um, and, and, you know, everything at school should be available to everybody, in, including those bits that are, are that the special days and the bits that we remember and that we talk about from our time at school quite often as well. So, yeah, would absolutely agree that the, the costs are are wide and varied, but, but but add up even those small amounts. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I want to put to you, um, you both as well, and you know, this is a possibly a pet bugbear of mine, but but it carries on from the kind of bit you said about that gap between people who are not eligible for pupil premium or free school meals, but are still. Um, in poverty, you know, or poverty is affecting them, which would be around school trips, uh, particularly curriculum-based school trips, as opposed to optional school trips. And most teachers will be familiar with that kind of idea that an optional ski, uh, uh, ski trip, for an example, which is not tied to the curriculum, people can be charged for and expected to pay for. Whereas anything curriculum related, it should be a voluntary contribution. And for me, that sometimes gets misused uh, as a term uh, that, you know, the, this voluntary contribution. And there will then, I guess, be people who are paying it. And sometimes th those can really add up if you have multiple children at the school. Absolutely. The the kind of um, particularly those sort of uh, maybe trips that happen, say, at the end of, um, you know, uh, year six, when uh, the school will try and take um uh, children overseas skiing trips um we've heard various kind of you know a trip to dubai in one school wow. as well um there's no um justification for using um you know pupil development grant funding for these kind of trips because they're not really educational um you know and the trouble is that some families will put themselves under extreme financial stress for their pupils to be able to take part. I mean, we've also heard in Wales that this can often be attached to being a member of the sports team as well. So we hear about schools where, you know, they've got a rugby team and they decide to take them all overseas to play, um, you know, uh, rugby but the families have to meet the cost of that and again it's not seen as part of the core curriculum um, and it's really really stigmatizing and difficult for children who are unable to attend um, and we still hear even when trips are actually curriculum related that that they're not always fully inclusive and I mean it's really common for children to say that they're just left behind um, and made to just sit in the classroom sometimes just on their own all day while all their friends go off 
on the school trip. And I mean, you know, everyone knows that children generally really love school trips. They will talk about them before and after a lot of the work in the classroom often then will be kind of following up on what was learned on that trip. So you can imagine for the, for the child or young person who's been left behind, how they end up feeling like that spare person. And what does that tell you about how you're valued, how your school values you, how it kind of, you know, isolates you from your peers. It's really deeply upsetting thought, to be honest, that this is happening. And um, the fact that I've heard this story over and over again from children themselves um, happening right now in 2022 in Wales, I just think, how is it allowed? How is it possible? But it is, you know, and so there, there are things that can be done to reduce the cost. But sometimes with these trips, it's just sort of wondering, is school the most appropriate place to be acting as a kind of travel agent for more wealthy children to go on holiday they probably do get to have other foreign holidays you know um through their families as well because i think when you hear the kind of stigma and and um you know just the general feeling of isolation of the children who can't participate it does seem you know re- it's quite difficult to square really mm-hmm. um i'm going to throw in as another potential cost um sorry sorry georgina did you want to come in i was just going to add um that that voluntary element we get into this really like uh dare i say gray area around what a Uh, what they mean by voluntary but also what's curriculum because if you're studying a a play in English and the school organizes a trip to go and see that play well is that curriculum or is that extra because it certainly gives you an advantage if you've been and seen it performed live or you know if you're studying the Romans and I'm here in the northeast uh, you know and there's a trip to go and see Hadrian's Wall that's probably really going to help with your understanding of what you're talking about in in your history lesson so you know I, I think there's for schools it, it's there's not clarity around uh, where some of these costs can and can't be um, asked of parents and schools are just trying to to navigate some of this as best they can um, and so I'm going to add in this one where there are activities that take place that make the school money and the, and the, the one I'm going to throw out here, and, and this is maybe kind of half and half of what we've both been saying as well uh, of missing out is, you know, I, I've recently, I've got two boys, where the, the one at school has had his photograph taken. And, you know, I will say to any listeners who do not have kids, you do not know how expensive photographs of your children really are when done. But, you know, it then puts me at a, a question of, do I not buy my child's school photograph? Do I buy it? I also know, you know, a lot of photography companies, then the school will receive something from that potentially. Certainly there are Christmas card type things that happen where the school can have children design Christmas cards. Then if parents buy them, the school gets, you know, a fee back. So there are these additional things that happen um, where the school, you know, is putting on things that you feel you want to do as a parent, I guess I'm saying. I, you know, I want them to do it because I want to be part of it. And I don't want to say to my kid, oh, yeah, I never bought your school photo. But the school is doing it to help themselves meet a budget. And so there's a few other bits and pieces like that, I guess. Yeah, it's really hard to, I've heard this before from parents, like to say, no, you're not purchasing the photograph of your own child feels like you're saying no to them. And it can be really difficult for them to understand, can't it? I guess with all of these things, what we would say is just there are alternatives. So we are... You know, as a project in our work with schools, it's not about um, 
taking the fun out of school or stopping those things that really mean a lot to both children and families. Having pictures of your child in a school uniform is something that, you know, many parents really value and, and would like the opportunity to do. Having a Christmas card again is is really, um, you know, it, it's a, a really lovely part of being at school. But there are ways of doing these things that are um, more affordable or more importantly, perhaps free for families. So we've seen some schools, for example, that um, rather than using external companies have used their own IT and tech equipment to take photographs and then have printed them and have still sold them to families, but they've sold them for like a couple of pounds rather than perhaps uh, some of the, the costs other providers may or may not um may not charge for it so I think what we're saying is not necessarily for schools not to do these things but to um, explore alternatives in terms of fundraising for the schools themselves that is a a, a, a funding challenge that schools are facing and you know we know that um, schools are in England are using their people premium, a third of them are using their people premium to plug gaps in their school funding. So we know that school funding has an impact on what schools can do around this issue. So I guess it goes back to where we started this conversation as, a, as an organisation overall. We think the solution to all of this is to see an end to child poverty. What we're doing in the interim with schools is encouraging them just to, um, to reflect on the school day and perhaps change how they do things to be a little bit more inclusive. I just want to, I guess, stress that I'm not laying all of this um, responsibility on schools. We've actually seen and we've we've given some examples of perhaps some of the you know the, the those things that children have said have been an issue in school but actually we've also heard from thousands of children who've said really nice things about their school and really appreciate when schools do do things differently to um, to be more inclusive the responsibility for addressing child poverty absolutely rests outside of the school gate this is just something else schools should be considering to to um improve the experience that children from low-income families have um well you know georgina that is you know a, a very tactful i'm going to be a little bit harsher on myself i am a teacher so i you know i can feel like you know can i i can i can do that to myself now as you know and say that sometimes i think you know as teachers we we do need to just remember we're quite privileged we've normally got you know, fairly okay paid jobs, we're fairly middle class, and we can sometimes forget. And so I think something like this of going through and thinking about what it can be like, is really important, because we can make, I guess, judgments from our own personal perspective of, you know, oh, you know, I, I can afford this, or I would do this, and we can forget the, the, the community that we're serving. So yeah, I think, you know, I'd be a little bit harsher there, maybe that we need to, you know, look outside of our own experience and see what's actually happening um, to, to do it. And hopefully we'll get onto, you know, a little bit about how pe how you feel people can start doing that. Maybe just, uh, you know, after the news. Now, what I wanted to talk about is what this can do then to families, what it can do to children. You know, if, if, if we are in that situation where they are either having to buy things that they, they can't afford, I guess, or having to make those decisions, what, what impact is this having? So we know that the words, um, you know, that children use um, to describe um, being unable to participate because of many, um, you know, are um, for younger children, they'll say that they feel left out, they feel 
different. They feel unhappy and excluded. Um, you know, the, in the words of, of one child that we spoke to, they just said, it feels like school is not my place. So, you know, I think that's a really, really critical thing to kind of remember when we're looking at outcomes at the end of education, why so many young people from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, you know, are, struggle with um, attendance and, um, you know, with um, achieving the expected level in their qualifications is that if they're saying, even in primary school, that school isn't doesn't feel like a place for people like them or that they're made to feel different and unhappy simply because they have less money than others. Um, it stands to reason that their engagement with and enjoyment of education is, is really profoundly affected. So, um, you know, the stigma that comes from being in poverty is, is a really important thing um, for uh, educators to recognize because we can get very focused on the material aspects of poverty. So we have a lot of focus on for example, hunger or children not having, you know, kind of the right shoes and the kind of, you know, the equipment that they need to learn. But it, it is also poverty is, is, a, is a socio-relational experience. And, you know, it is about being made to feel less than others because you have less money. And in very subtle and mostly unintentional ways, schools can reinforce that social stigma. And it's often the first place that that children start to realize how society views families like theirs. So when the Children's Commissioner for Wales did research with, with children in poverty and asked them, you know, um, what they wanted to change most um, in their lives, school was the kind of number one thing because they often, you know, love their families and feel very secure and feel comfortable in their communities. But going into school was where they were made to feel you know, that there was a problem, there was something wrong with them, that just being poor was, was you know, not um, something, uh, you know, that they were made conscious of their poverty for the first time as well, um, you know. So so I think, you know, thinking about the kind of emotional well-being impact of, of um, how stigma is produced in schools is really important, and particularly in Wales, where we're very focused on um, mental health and well-being of children and young people now, understanding that the kind of process of recognizing poverty and reducing costs and tackling poverty related stigma is a really powerful way of ensuring inclusion and making sure that every learner feels welcome in school yeah and the only, sorry the only thing i would add i guess from a family point of view as well is like um that one of the the consequences for families sometimes is debt relating to um to school costs so we've heard from families who've said that they've borrowed money or um, got into debt around things like purchasing school uniform or um, or paying for school trips. So at, it, it has a direct impact on household budgets as well as all of that um, well-being side of what, when we're talking about the individual child as well that Alice just mentioned. Yeah, so it really does, you know, affect the whole family when you are asking for, you know, that that you know you decide that you're going to have you know go on a go on a school trip we you know we've decided actually we're going to go on a school trip at 10 pound each we're going to go to the local bowling alley that that you know that could be 10 pound that means that you know mum doesn't get the bus to work that week and walks instead or you know it really could be affecting the whole family because you know I guess as we've said most people or a lot of people wouldn't make the choice for their child not to have something if, if they felt they could. And so then that, that cost has to go somewhere. 
Sorry, I was going to say, you're absolutely right. You know, and we hear from parents a lot. We've done a a lot of research through the pandemic and then afterwards with parents and carers um, about how they feel about school costs. And you're absolutely right that on the whole, parents will sacrifice so much themselves to make sure that their children don't miss out. But there really are implications and it can mean, you know, often that people don't have enough money to eat and that they can't meet their own basic needs. Um, And, you know, as I say, there are so many families living with just virtually no disposable income at all so even very very small costs and charges can have a huge impact then on the kind of day-to-day life of of the families and the impact is usually felt by um you know mothers who kind of act as the shock absorbers of poverty in the household so um it does have real implications for parental mental health and well-being as well the guilt that you feel as a parent when you can't provide your child with everything that they want and need is just huge and it's so incredibly stressful so you know anything that helps when schools help families with costs what what parents tell us is that they value that compassion so much you know it's really really appreciated and it makes them feel like you know school is somewhere that they can trust it really strengthens those relationships as well yeah you know i I really can you know i say imagine it i you know i i have my two boys at school and i you know as i say i i think that that is such a powerful thing for that people maybe don't realize and it is something as you say with the stigma that people maybe wouldn't even talk about or bring to the school and so hopefully we're going to go to the news and when we come back we'll hear some you know maybe a change of pace we'll start talking about some affirmative positive action that, that schools can take to either start finding out where they at with it, I guess auditing, you know, what, what where they are, or some positive steps they can take to be more inclusive, um, you know, and more equitable. Um, Ellie, Georgina, are you happy to stick around till just after the news? Absolutely. Yep. See you then. Fantastic. We'll see you on the other side of the news. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. 
our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Search Ed event took place recently at King's Leadership Academy in Warrington and was attended by more than 300 teachers from settings across the UK. The full day consisted of over 40 sessions given by leading academics and educationalists, including Tom Sherrington, Paul Kirshner and Zoe Enser. The day was arranged by Mike Childs and Sarah Vernon, who are both senior leaders at King's Leadership Academy in Warrington. Mike Childs said, Research Ed events present the very best thinking and approaches in education, which is why the event became a sellout with people travelling from all over the UK. The ability to put many sessions online meant we could allow over 400 to attend, either in person or virtually. In Scotland, Water Safety Scotland, in partnership with Education Scotland, has launched the first of its free educational resources for schools. This new initiative affirms its commitment to reducing accidental drowning deaths in Scotland by 50% by 2026. Laura Erskine, Education Subgroup Chair for WSS, said, On average, there are 96 water-related fatalities in Scotland each year. We want to encourage safe and responsible access to Scotland's waterways, which can be a positive and enjoyable experience for young people when coupled with appropriate risk awareness and education. WSS aims to roll out the next phase of this initiative in late May and will continue this during the rest of 2022. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello. This week, 
we're going to take a look at the much coveted presentation clicker. It's a must-have device for a lot of teachers out there as it allows you to move slides whilst AFK. For those new to 2 Minute Tech, AFK is away from keyboard. Ranging in price from £8 to £30, this classroom essential allows you to stretch your legs and make a few shapes while you dance around the room. Some of us have a mandatory piece of blue tack over the built-in laser pointer. Others have invested in a bit of duct tape. So we ensure the device meets health and safety regulations. And most of us have a small stash of AAA batteries in a secret place that we never admit to having. Well, Clicker, I'm telling you to stand aside. The mini wireless multimedia keyboard is taking your place. Having a lower price range of £8 to £15 and being able to do everything that Clicker does except blind pupils as it has no laser pointer and wait for it. It is rechargeable. You have full keyboard and mouse control from anywhere in your classroom. You can move slides on, Alt-Tab to switch applications, type, use spacebar to stop and start YouTube clips for questioning. Battery life is quite honestly ridiculously long and if it runs out, a five minute charge on USB lead will get you through your lesson. All I can say is if you're considering replacing your clicker or are simply a gadget magnet, this is a must have. Search for mini wireless keyboard in any online shop. The only thing I'd say is get one with a light up keyboard if you present with the lights off. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show on Wednesday evening with me, Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Now tonight we are talking about the cost of the school day, uh, making schools financially equitable. I'm joined by Georgina Burr and Ellie Harwood from the Child Poverty Action Group and we have discussed some of the issues uh, that families are facing, some of the impact of it and where some of those costs are coming from. We are now going to talk a little bit about what schools can do, uh, ways that we can be maybe a little bit more aware in what we're doing and maybe some of the things we can put in place to help, maybe not, I, I was going to say address child poverty, but I guess limit the impact of child poverty would, would, would possibly be more appropriate, Georgina, would it? Yeah, I would I would go with that because yeah, um, as I said earlier, uh, schools are uh, doing lots around this. Um, we just think from speaking to children and young people and from working with schools that there are some really practical and quite often cost-neutral things that schools can do, but that make a really significant difference to children and young people. It's not going to solve child poverty, but it is absolutely going to have an impact on the experience that that young person will have in that particular school. And that's, I think, what schools should be aiming for. Fantastic. And so, you know, if I am listening to this or if I, you know, if I'm listening back to the podcast and I, and I think, yep, yeah, you know, I would like to look into this. I, I, I go into school tomorrow. What are my first steps, really, you know, if I want to look at this within my school setting? So um, I guess 
we've got lots of resources on the CPG website, which will help with uh, questions to ask around this. And um, uh, Children Northeast, who do poverty proofing, our project partners, they've also got lots of resources that we've made available to schools. There are some really practical things, like we've designed a school calendar, which sets out all of those special events and activities that happen over the course of the year um, with suggestions on how you can make them more inclusive when it comes to, um, to children and families. I guess the starting point, and I'm sure Ellie would, uh, this would be top of both of our lists, I'm sure she'll give you hers, is schools need to be talking to children and families about this. You know, we have developed solutions in conjunction with school communities and you know, you need to understand from a school's point of view what families are finding more of a challenge when it comes to, to school costs. And I think one of the key things that we have to do is normalise talking about money and about poverty with families and, and, and children themselves. Um, and actually now's a really good time to do that because it, whilst this issue exists outside of what's happening with cost of living, it's a really great opportunity to say, you know, we know things are changing for families at the moment. If you're finding things difficult, if you're going to struggle with the cost of this triplet or this club, this activity, please come and talk to us. And I guess I would add to that, um, uh, be very general in those comments. So quite often in England, I will see letters from schools that say, for example, if your child's eligible for free school meals, you know, the cost of this trip can be reduced. And that's fine because people premium will be being used to subsidize it. But actually, I think we need to start opening the door to just if you will find it tricky for your child to attend this, please come and have a conversation. Because as we said right at the very beginning, there are so many families that won't necessarily fit that eligibility criteria that um, whole school approaches to are, are really great ways of helping. And the last thing I would say uh, on this, and then I'll, I'll let Ellie share some thoughts, is just um, speak to staff about it and encourage staff to... Um, look at if we looked at every part of the school day from the moment children arrive in the morning until the end of the very last after school club where might children experiencing poverty um be missing out and ask faculties to look at this in your subject where might there be barriers to participation for a child that's um that's grown up in or or experiencing poverty so let's Let's open a discussion about this, I think, should be uh, sh should be the starting point for any school. Yeah, I mean, Georgina knows me only too well. The first thing that I would say, I think we would all say is you've, you've got to speak to your to the children, young people in your school. Talk to the families as well, if you can. It's opening up that dialogue. Um, something that we know makes a big difference and we've seen so many amazing examples of this in the schools we're working with through the UK Cost of the School Day project where schools really invest in building trust in relationships and in parental engagement and um, I always remember a, a, a quote from someone who works in an office in a, a school um, in the Cunnan Valley in South Wales and she said I, uh, we're known as discretion on legs so they're so you know it was such a funny term it's always stuck with me but it really what she was saying was that you know 
people know that if they've got problems with money or they can't afford to pay for something or perhaps they've fallen behind with paying for school dinners and things, that they can trust the school to help them and they don't have to hide from those problems. And the schools do loads of things to really help maximise, um, you know, the, the support available for families. Um, and they're aware of all the kind of different ways that they can, um, you know, connect them with, with help with costs as well. So they're encouraging people all the time to apply for free school meals and making sure they're getting the, the kind of the grants for uniform and so on. Um, that they're looking for, you know, ways of, of funding additional opportunities in the school that where the cost is is met for the families. So, you know, looking at um, all the kind of, you know, grant giving organisations or um, looking at local businesses and things like that and trying to bring in funding so that they can make sure that everything that they're running is free um, to everyone in the school. Um, so, you know, these things can be really amazing, but it all begins really with being open to having those conversations. And that does take some time. And it's as much about your attitude um, as it is, you know, about, um, you know, the, the, the steps that you take. But if you begin with a process of having compassion for families who, who um, are struggling with money and wanting to make sure that everyone, you know, feels comfortable talking about it, putting those reminders in every letter and just being really, really conscious, you know, as I say, not to target it too specifically when you're communicating about it but say that we recognize that you know everyone's finding it hard financially um, and if you do need help please come and talk to us is a really good way of starting those conversations yeah and I imagine you know sort of sorry uh, go uh, go on Georgina I guess the other thing I was going to say sorry to interrupt once you get with a start and it's uh, you know we spend all day every day talking about (laughs) about poverty in schools um but just really practically and I've got a few more practical suggestions as well for um is what is what does it currently cost to attend your school and that's a question we pose to schools do you know that if we added up all of the opportunities you run from September through to July how much it would actually cost a family if the children took part in everything that your school is is offering and I think that's a useful exercise in terms of like a benchmark because once you've got that figure and you might be surprised at what it is then you can look at well actually how do we bring that overall figure down because those small amounts we we might say oh we've asked five pounds this week we've asked a pound this week but actually over the course of the school year what is it costing children in your school to to attend yeah and I think you know I really like this idea that as you kind of mentioned it about a calendar and I would you know I think I'd go one step further because I'd you know I'd share that with parents if I could because you know I you know I know myself that actually you know getting a, a call for money sort of you know within the month or at the end of a month before payday that can be you know incredibly hard if suddenly this thing has appeared now if the school have known that that was going to happen all year you know I'd love to have been made aware of it I guess and I'm not talking about my own children's school here just in case they're listening you know hypothetically I'd love to be be, be made aware of that as early as possible so I can budget for it Absolutely. And I think one thing that is is quite important and a lot of people um, in schools might not be aware is that most low income families are receiving um, some support through Social Security. And traditionally, families on low incomes have been getting child tax credit, but um, they're all being moved over to universal credit by um, and this is process is being sped up. And when families move on to universal credit, it makes budgeting much harder because you're less likely to have kind of regular predictable payments. You, You don't know 
how much money you're going to have from month to month and um, particularly if your hours change or um you know you're, you you can't work because you're ill your children are ill and this means that um families really appreciate knowing in advance what their costs are going to be so that they can start planning for when they need to spend you know because most low-income families will plan well in advance for you know say the start of the school new year um you know where you need to buy a new uniform and things but it's when you know those those other often quite short notice unexpected costs sort of spring up lots of families unfortunately on on you know low incomes go for quite a long period every month between paydays and when they get um, universal credit with very little money at all or, or no money so you know advance notice of when you're going to need to pay for things can really really help as well fantastic um now we you know we've talked a couple of bits there and i'm sure some more kind of uh, practical tips as well i'm going to put out something to you and this might be i don't know if this is contentious or not but i think there is poss- the possibility one of my bugbears within schools was raising money from our school community and you know it seems like an easy option if you want to raise some money for you know to say oh you know we go- we want to go on a school trip so we don't want to ask parents for money we can uh, we'll have a cake sale and um, I always found that frustrating because you were selling the cakes to the parents and the parents ended up uh, raising money uh, paying for the trip anyway inadvertently through kind of a backdoor system and uh, you know you spoke a little bit there I think it was about grants and things and things where other places people can look or maybe it was Ellie but it is possible for schools to look you know for support outside of their local community Yeah. Do you want to go on this one, Georgina? Because I have spoken a bit. About no, it's all right. You'll probably know more. What I was just going to add, Nathan, is that actually um, on on the cake sale one, we have seen it where parents have paid twice, as in they're asked to donate the cakes for the cake sale that they then have to go and buy back because obviously everybody wants a, a cake. Uh, so they, they, they've, they've made a contribution twice, whereas actually it might have been more straightforward just to have asked for... Um, as for the 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 uh, 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 well thought out um uh, donation but yes we always encourage schools to um there are grants available on on a, a, a national or local level um but to, to get in touch with with local businesses um who are quite often really eager to support what's happening in the school next door and have that list the other thing I guess that's similar but but not always is um around PTAs so they will in some schools sort of undertake fundraising activities which of course the money is then utilized to purchase things for the children and and for the school um but we, we have sort of given some guidance on ways that PTAs can support the school without necessarily fundraising from families directly and that comes down to looking outside of the school community as you said uh to to um to 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 be able to fund those things um yeah ellie i don't know if you've got any more on that i think fundraising is a a really tricky one as we've sort of mentioned before it's um, not something generally that's considered related to the curriculum so you can't use specific funding that might be intended to help um you know low income learners but um we also know that there is evidence that for example where you have um fun days where children have to dress up to attend school um they might have to um you know 
come in their pajamas or wear clothes of a particular color or Christmas jumper day that this actually has an impact on attendance as well because when families can't afford to pay even a pound to dress up or where children don't have the the costumes that all of their classmates do they just won't go to school so sometimes some of this fundraising is actually intended to help children in poverty and it can be for charities that will do work around poverty but unintentionally the the effect is that in fact it leads to children in poverty being more likely to miss a day of school so they miss out on the fun um they're excluded from in, the enjoyable experience their peers have and they could well also be missing out on on critical parts of their education um it doesn't mean obviously that school should stop trying to have fun i think it's really really more important than ever that, that we bring lots of joy um into the classroom as well because we know that matters a lot to children and young people and they, they really value these things but it's thinking again about how do schools do it how can you introduce keep the fun but without the cost and without the kind of um you know in, um often unintentional sort of exclusion of, of children who just don't have the resources to take part and I think around that, um, that that support and sort of externally through fundraising, you know, the, the charity themed days, um, we have encouraged schools and, and schools are trying out that there are other ways of supporting charities and teaching children about, you know, the really great work that various charities or organisations might do that isn't reliant upon raising money. So, for example, um, you know, we have encouraged schools to consider uh, children volunteering or donating their time rather than the focus on uh, always being about being how much money's been we can raise as a school it's about reframing some of that to say that there are different ways of of making a contribution that that's not always about how much money y- you donate yeah I think you know you guys have covered off two of my my biggest bugbears as far as pitfalls for trying to you know you you think you're being helpful and that is you know the the expensive you know um as i say christmas jumper day i always that doesn't cost me a pound as a donation as a parent that cost me 10 pound for a jumper and then a pound for a donation as well so that's already cost me 11 pound and again you know when you talked about the cake sales you're right i'm you know i'm buying some cakes for two pound 50 if i haven't made them myself because i probably haven't had time and then i'm giving them to the school and then i'm going and buying them back for 50p so the school's only getting 50p and i've spent three pounds and you know i think thinking through some of these things certainly uh, now, one of the bits we haven't talked about, you know, we've talked about some of those incidental costs. Do we need to think bigger? Do we need to be thinking about uniform? You know, do we need to be thinking about um, uh, the, the the cost of, uh, yeah, I guess uniform is the biggest one when it comes to that, or, or um, equipment as well at secondary school. Do, do we need to address that as well? So if I can start uniform in England, um, and, and some listeners sort of may already be aware of this, that the, the Department for Education, there is actually new guidance that schools um, uh, need to start implementing from, from September around uh, developing more affordable uniform policies. So this is, is what the Department for Education are now saying and have given some very clear guidance on this. And what's in the guidance is that... Um, when designing a uniform policy, affordability should be one of the top th- 
things on the list that is considered when a school is set and what a uniform is going to be. The other thing that is now in, you know, what schools must do is really consider the amount of branded items of uniform that they have and whether or not families and parents have choice about suppliers or whether there's a supplier where families do just have to pay the price, whatever that price is. And actually, again, the guidance makes very clear that parents should have the option as much as possible to buy unbranded items and to keep the number of branded items to an absolute minimum. If they are going to have branded items to try and make sure there's a range of suppliers or that families can buy plain jumpers or blazers and then perhaps purchase badges or things that they can um, have added themselves again rather than being tied to, um, to one outlet. The other new thing in the guidance, which schools, many of them already have this, but it is now going to be something schools uh, must do in relation to uniform, is make sure that there is um, opportunities for uh, pre-loved uniform provision. So recycling of uniform um, and that it's available to families as well. So in England, um, the picture is changing in terms of uniform or, or certainly should be by the beginning of um the next academic year um, and it, it's something because if there is going to be a change made to a uniform policy there needs to be a consultation period with pupils and families in the community and um, that consultation period should be taking place now you know because families will be starting to think about buying new uniform over the summer and you know families need to know what the uniform policy is going to look like and what uniform is going to cost so Costs. So yes, definitely. And again, I think this is really practical that schools really need to look at how much is uniform costing and and is it necessary? Is you know that other things that are nice to have in uniform policies, but actually, what do we really need our children to have and aware for for their time at school? Fantastic. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to run through the things that we've talked about. We've talked about uniform. We've talked a little bit about trips um, and, and, and sort of trying to find that balance between it. We've talked about P. We've talked a little bit about food and lunches and, and the hazards, I guess, that can run in there. Um, the, the free school meals coming in Wales. You know, we have a little bit of it in England in infant schools, the free school meals. Um my question around that then of food and and you know this is a really hard one for schools i guess to take into account is how do we reduce then because i'm gonna posit hunger is a big issue that would would affect children in schools how do we look at it how do we address it how can we is there a way we can tactfully raise it because I imagine it would be an incredibly emotive thing to talk to parents about. Yeah, so, so some really practical things from England. And again, we are in a very different position to both Scotland and Wales in terms of free school meals. We have the um, the most restrictive eligibility criteria in comparison to the, 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 uh, the UK countries at the moment. There are some practical things schools can do even within the current system. So the first is to make sure that everybody that is eligible is actually signed up for them because again we know that there's a, a gap there and we've seen schools do some creative things like 
when children start school in reception or in year seven, they've given all pupils a free jumper in exchange for the family filling out the free school meal eligibility form. So they've checked everybody on entry into the school. And it's also a really great way of providing something that families need for their children to attend. The other thing, particularly in secondary schools in England, is to look at how the free school meal money is allocated. So in lots of schools, students are only able to use that money, that their allocation of free school meal money at lunchtime, which means if they've like got double PE first thing or they're a bit more hungry in the morning, they can't go and get something at breakfast time or they can't go and get something at break time. And again, schools can practically do something around that as well by just allowing them to use that um, that £2.30 allowance over the course of the day rather than it being tied to lunchtime. The other thing schools can do is um, is to look at what happens in England, again, particularly in secondary schools, to um, unspent free school meal money. So what I mean by that is if pupils um, aren't particularly hungry one day, only go and grab a sandwich, it's just £1.80, how is the remainder of that money used? Is it available the next morning if that student decides they're hungry and they would like an extra biscuit at break time or something like that. So to make sure that students are getting full access to and full use of the, the money that is allocated towards the, their lunches, because in the majority of schools, anything that's not spent is removed from um, from their accounts. So there, I think, like I said, in England, we're in a slightly different position, but some action schools can take within the system we've got, which would help around um, around food provision. Uh, but I know Ellie is uh, has been doing lots of work on sort of Hungam with various organisations in Wales, and we'll have lots to to share as well about how we approach this. Yeah, I think you know everything that Georgina said is is incredibly important. Maximising take up where there is um, money towards the cost of food in schools, but um, we still know that a lot of children who are eligible for free school meals and do have a, a valid claim in place don't eat those meals um, so if we're looking at kind of how do you poverty proof lunchtime um, at school you really need to speak to um, the children and young people about their experiences of the food do they like the food and look a lot at the kind of um, the social and relational aspect of eating and the whole lunchtime experience really um, sometimes we find in schools that you know lunch time is the only time that you can access well-being support so you know young people might have to choose between whether to collect their free school meal or go and speak to the counsellor. They can't do both. Um, some schools, they've they've shortened the, the lunch breaks down so that there's only half an hour available. And again, that kind of then, you know, leaves young people with that really difficult choice of whether they're going to socialise with their friends or try and do another activity or get the meal that they're entitled to. And, you know, we know that um, the levels of food insecurity in the UK, so, you know, what's sometimes called like child food poverty, is, is, are just absolutely... Um, rising at an astronomical rate at the moment um, and this means that for a lot of children that meal might be their only sort of substantial meal of the day so it becomes ever more important um, that they're able to access that food and that the kind of experience of, of accessing that food is stigma free so you know we have um, sort of guidance in Wales which says that you know 
learners who are getting free school meals shouldn't be able to be you know their peers shouldn't be able to identify that but there can still be lots of ways where it's really obvious to everyone that you are on free school meals and that's normally because you're on a fixed allowance and so there will be a kind of option that's costed to the value of the free school meal allowance and it will normally allow you to have like a particular drink and a sandwich for example but no dessert whereas anyone who can bring money from home or is more affluent they'll have like a much broader range of options and they can then be choosing you know um, whether to have a panini and fruit and things like that so this can be really embarrassing and can some, make some young people unwilling to even um, take up the free school meal they'd rather go off ground spend a pound on some chips or something um, rather than kind of go through that um, you know public identification I guess of themselves as not being able to afford um, you know the the options available and there's still a huge issue with breakfast and snacks and so on particularly in secondary schools where um, you know there's often you can buy hot food but um, learners don't have any allowance for that if they're on free school meals or if they are allowed the kind of one pound breakfast allowance that they get in year seven it will allow them to have toast whereas everyone else is eating pizza and these kind of things so it can leave young people um, feeling embarrassed and left out again and that's what we mean really when we talk about you know the poverty proofing principle um, is that there should that shouldn't be happening and you have to think about you know are we offering a kind of a substandard experience I guess you know of food in schools to um, young people who are getting free school meals and I would just add to that, and I'm sure, uh, again, this, Nathan, I'd be interested in your experiences around this, in terms of Ellie talked about making sure that um, where free school meals are being given, that they are um, that, that system isn't drawing attention to those that are in receipt of free school meals. I think what we're hearing is that things are getting better in schools because lots of schools are moving towards biometric payment systems where everybody will sort of pay in the same way that becomes very different on the days quite often when school trips are organised and it's those in receipt of free school meals that will get a school packed lunch that comes in usually, not always, but the brown or the white paper bag that, you know, to be really clear, children are aware that their peers get those bags because they are in receipt of free school meals. So to think about not just what happens when children are in school, but what happens on visits out of school, or if you're a secondary uh, teacher, what happens to free school meal provision if students are on work experience for a week or for two weeks? Do they just miss out on that um, entitlement in the times that they're not in school? So that there's a lots of things I think to unpick and explore around uh, how food currently works in schools yeah I really like you know this idea I think the thing I'm going to take one of the things I'm going to take away is this idea of poverty proofing but also not just within that what you've talked about when we're talking about this possible kind of two-tier education system where it's not you know they might be getting something but it's not quite as much as everyone else and, and the, the opportunities there and the stigma has been a big one for me through this. And I, I really relate to this, you know, when you talked about those brown paper bags that go on school trips, I, I have seen that, you know, and I think it is also worth remembering, you know, in primary school, often people will say about having some, some maybe some spending money if you're going to the zoo. And that can be hard as well, you know, where someone is getting maybe a, a slightly more enhanced education because of their financial families financial circumstances you know can be incredibly tough 
Yeah, I mean, spending money on school trips is is a big one, really. You know, and it's a simple thing that schools can do is um is just include um spending money in the cost of the trip, or make either you know make sure that you don't get to spend any money at all, or say that there's kind of a limit, um because uh, it's really interesting when you talk to children to get them to tell you about school trips they've been on they quite often will tell you what they bought they can remember from years ago like pre-covid times you talk to an eight-year-old and they'll be able to tell you about a school trip they went on when they were five and you know they what they bought in the gift shop and they can remember what their peers bought as well so these things really do stay in children's memories longer than a lot of other things do so um making sure that it's just a kind of equitable experience is is really worthwhile um you know because it just it shows children that they're all equally valued really yeah um you know fantastic now we are coming towards the end of the show and it's been amazing to you know some really valuable you know if you if you've missed out and you're listening back or you've just joined us you know you can download this as a podcast shortly afterwards either on spotify amazon or itunes or go to our website ttradio.org slash listen back you'll be able to find it the big one for me that I'm taking away from this, the biggest one, um, is I'm going to go back to my school because a lot of this stuff is already there. But the thing I don't know for sure that you kind of mentioned was this take up of PE and music based on whether they could afford tuition or extra, uh, you know, I guess for sport, it'd be um, out of school clubs like a football club on a Saturday, whether they've had that earlier on in in their life and that's kind of what's led them to pick that as an option and and how we can address that because that's a really interesting kind of take for me to take away as we come to wrap up then i'm going to give you a chance just for a uh, a final thought a final kind of uh, takeaway for any listeners listening ellie do you want to go first yeah okay um so you know i think that every school um probably does at least one thing um that you know they could tweak at least and I would just sort of really urge people to go to um, the Child Poverty Action Group website we've got dedicated pages the cost of the school day on there um, you know and begin that process and it can be as simple as just doing a, a very quick survey or some pupil voice groups and really um, you know understanding from a perspective of, of the children in the school um, and um, the families that send their children to your school, um, what the issues are um, and being really open to having those conversations and really willing to take that feedback. Um, We know how challenging things are in schools at the moment. I mean, it's, you know, I'm constantly in awe of how much schools are doing to support families on top of, you know, dealing with everything that comes with the pandemic and all of the disruption that continues to go on. Um, But, there are so many more little things that can kind of be built in and you will see so many benefits from doing it as well. I mean, this isn't just something that's a, you know, a nice and compassionate thing to do, but it really can help to increase attendance and attainment and all of these things if you have that ethos in your school. So I would encourage people definitely to go onto our website, have a look at the resources that we've got um, and, you know, and kind of uh, engage with, with, with sort of trying to disseminate a lot of the learning from the, the work we've been doing with Children Northeast on the poverty proofing at the moment. Um, you know, and we, we would just love to hear other people's examples of good practice as well, because that's a big part of what we do is actually, you know, finding where schools are doing incredible things and then sharing it with others. Fantastic. And uh, Georgina, any, any final thoughts? 
Yeah, nothing really to add other than say like do get in touch either through our website or or Ali and I both uh, uh, use Twitter because we are looking at you know sharing what school what great practices already out there and what schools are doing around this. But also actually you know some of these challenges are, are almost uh, dare I say universal across a range of schools. So let's as a an education system as an education sector try to problem solve some of these uh you know complex issues and, and work together to 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 think about some potential solutions that that will make a difference within within the education system fantastic well you know hopefully people will take you up on that um thank you so much so knowledgeable so such an important topic as well and some really useful ideas for people to to take away so thank you both very much for coming on to join us tonight no props at all thanks so much for the invitation it's been really great to talk to you yeah it's been uh, fab and you know i maybe i don't know what your your welsh is like uh, up in the um uh, up in the valley, up in the valleys, maybe Ellie. I'm I am. Said, I uh, am. I'm on the, yeah, I'm the, on the periphery. Yeah. <laughs> on the periphery. Well, I will say from here, you know, in the sunny south uh, of Swansea, uh, Nostar, as I end all my shows. Good night, um, and we will see you all again uh, next time. Thank you again, guys, for being on. No problems, Nostar. Nostar. <laughs> Good night. Ta-da. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.